Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Will Thompson, a repeat guest, coming to talk about real asset investing. Like Stella, real assets have their group back. And uh, like the homie Justin Timberlake, they brought sexy back. Either way, Will is an investor that invests in projects and companies that produce real assets. He's not making commodity calls, at least not as I interpret it. I think you will enjoy the conversation. I enjoyed the conversation. Massive capital may own positions in the companies discussed. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and investing involves risks, including the loss of capital. I hope you enjoy the episode. I certainly enjoyed talking to Will, and uh, he'll probably be back, so hopefully you like him. This episode is sponsored by Stratosphere.io, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. Io. Stratosphere.io is a web-based terminal that has financial data, KPIs, links to filings, hedge fund letters, and much more. Stratosphere.io provides clean segment data to go along with the KPIs. Everything's triple-checked for accuracy. I think the interface is slick. I've enjoyed doing uh, comparative analyses on uh, different companies within the product, Stratosphere saves users like myself time and enables easy comparisons between companies and offers company-specific metrics such as subscriber counts, numbers of locations, etc. If you are using the product and you happen to stumble upon a company that doesn't have KPIs, ping my man Braden or his team. They are very quick and responsive. Head over to stratosphere.io for a free trial. Should you want to sign up for a paid offering, Please use the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for 15% off. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Enjoy the show. So, uh, repeat guest, thrilled to be joined again by Will Thompson of Massive Capital. Your space has been, uh, you know, pretty sexy lately. Uh, real asset investing got its groove back like Stella. Uh, we're getting there, maybe. Um, I think, at least from my perspective, 2020 and 2021 were, were when we really started to get our groove back. Last year, I thought it was a bit, you know, a bit, it was a tough year, I think, for a lot of people. Um, we did all right. We ended up the year down 5%, so we can't complain too bad. But uh it was a complicated year, I think, for for everyone, real asset included. Uh, I thought, sorry, we got a thunderstorm here. I don't know. Oh, all right. I didn't know what that was. That was terrifying for a second. Yeah. <laughs> um, we thought there were some pretty tricky situations last year for real assets in general, especially on the energy side. I mean, boy, was oil hard and, and complicated to just think through at any level. So why uh why i guess we could start there you said uh when when we were sort of talking about what what we'd talk about you said i have some uh maybe divergent views on oil and uh the equities are even more complicated so curious to hear you riff on that yeah well i guess you know the challenge with um you know, for, for a bunch of your listeners have already heard me talk, a bunch of them maybe haven't. So Massive Capital runs a longshore portfolio that invests in energy, materials, and industrials. So, you know, 60% of the portfolio or something at any given time is tied to commodity producers. 
but we make a specific, really deliberate effort to try and invest on the basis of companies and what they're doing. And they happen to produce commodities, but we don't start with the commodities first. Um, and so that ends up creating a bit of a divergent perspective, I think, sometimes on commodity prices. Um, but the most common outcome is one where I just sort of throw my hands up and I go, the situation is too hard. Um, and I've got no idea uh, which direction that this commodity is going. And everything looks in the equity world perfectly priced for where that commodity is right now. So, and I can't find any companies that are doing something, turning on an asset, et cetera. So that makes it, uh, can make it hard. But in regards to oil, I feel like I've been in that situation for like nine or 10 months where oil could go either direction. And there are very good arguments on both sides, uh, bull and bear. A lot of it comes down to like timeline. Are we talking the next 12 months? Are we talking 18 to 24 months? But there are good arguments on both sides. Uh, and I look at the equities um, and again, the, everything seems sort of pretty reasonably or fairly priced. If your expectation is oil in the, let's call it, you know, 60 to $80 range. And outside of those ranges, you really need to have like this really strong thesis about what oil is going to do in order to get sort of pop out of the equity or the equity itself. The companies need to, you know, sort of be doing something right. If we think about company can, you know, they can grow production, they can turn on new asset, uh, they could improve margins. You know, these are the things the company can do. We can't find a lot of oil companies that are you know, doing any of those things, which means all we've got is the commodity price. I can't, I can't figure out the commodity price. Um, and I can't get as high a conviction on sort of like these oil 120 stories or oil 40 stories as some people on say Twitter can get. Um, I just can't, I can't get there conviction wise. So, um, my my divergent view is 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 everyone should take the bat and leave it on their shoulder in regards to oil, which which nobody likes. Um, so yeah, well, I think uh, at least on Twitter and and some message boards or whatever, the uh, look you're you're out you're you're running a fund you're 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 at the earlier side of your career, and uh, one of the reasons I'm totally comfortable featuring you is I know that you want to bet your reputation only once. So I can understand leaving uh, the bat on your shoulder as opposed to uh, making bold calls and getting to, you know, I don't know, marketing another product down the road. I know that's not you. So it's tough to make a bold call, I think, on oil right now. So for people that haven't heard, uh, you want to go through the the cycle of when uh, commodity companies like turning on an asset, kind of the the they're drilling or they find a commodity, you get the first like hype pop and then uh, you get like the lull of, oh, this is going to be hard. And then like kind of that curve. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in mining, it's called the Lasonda curve, um, but we see it. And I, I think it's interesting. You, you see it outside of commodity businesses too. You definitely see it in biotech. Um, I'd have to think about other industries, but I'm sure that this is pretty a pretty common sort of chart pattern, if you will, or price pattern uh, for any startup. But, you know, with commodity producer, they find the commodity and, you know, a company 
is trading, you know, sort of if it's a mine, mining's again the easiest one to do this with. But you know, a company starts trading in Canada and the mine is just geologists. And geologists got an idea about the way some plate tectonics or something worked in South America. Goes down to South America, raises some capital in Canada, drills, finds something, and the stock pops really high. Now, if you sort of look at the results there, that's all sort of you know, commodity price. The commodity price literally doesn't have to move, but that sort of uh, optionality all of a sudden is created in the stock price as a result of all this sort of metal in the ground. Um, then once it pops, though, people recognize that that optionality is only valuable if you can monetize it. So you got to build the mine. And, and people, for some reason, like to shy away from that period. And so what happens is the stock sells off. Um, and you've got permitting, financing, et cetera. You got this long period of time, this orphan period where, you know, the company is, and it's better to probably think about it as a project. The project is getting developed um, and in some regards de-risking. And meanwhile, it's trading sideways, frequently down. Uh, and then when you turn on an asset, turn on the mine, all of a sudden you get a big pop in the stock. And that big pop in the stock is caused by, Generally speaking, when you again decompose equity results, it's not caused by commodity price. It's caused by all of a sudden production volume uh, and profit margin expansion, both of which occur, you know, regardless of what the commodity price is, because you've turned on an asset. Um, and so we, at least at Massive Capital, we like to play in that orphan period. We don't have the geological expertise for either mining or energy to do that sort of initial pop, uh, but we can underwrite sort of management's ability to execute. And then I, I think the other thing to note is that because a lot of these companies can be looked at and thought of as a project, as opposed to, hopefully your listeners don't misinterpret this, less of a business, more of a project, which is to say it's got a beginning and an end, Yeah, um, yeah. which creates a very different valuation process for say DCF. Like DCF becomes very sort of like, straightforward and easy to do when there's a beginning and an end and a singular process with a singular project product that is undifferentiated. So you can get sort of a very, um, a very good analysis or valuation with some sensitivities around commodity prices um, during that period. Well, and the other thing that I'm pretty sure you talked about it previously on this pod, but I, I was listening to uh, your manual of ideas, uh, speech, which I also read. Thanks for sending it. But a uh, shout out to John. Hello, John, if you're listening. And, you know, you, you mentioned that when a mining company goes to raise capital, they work for a project or register as a project, they have to put out like a pretty detailed business plan, which helps some of the, uh, the DCF modeling, right? Oh, it, it, tremendously. And, and I mean, a lot of this arises out of you know, fraud that occurred in the 80s and the 90s. And, and a lot of people are familiar with, say, in the case of mining, the Briac story, which is a, a story of uh, some guys in uh, Papua New Guinea who found a gold, found a gold deposit, um, sent their assays off to get evaluated. And somehow between the mine mouth and where the assay was being done, they, they, they paused the truck and sprinkled some gold in on top of it. But out of these sort of frauds that occurred, uh, you've got a lot of rules that came down the pipeline um, just about 
the information that information transparency and what needs to sort of be told to investors. And that 43101 document in the case of Canada, and it's it's called something else in South America or uh, South Africa, and it's called something else in Australia. Um, and the United States has got something else, but it's all the same document. Uh, generally speaking, they they lay out their whole plan, in, including quarter to quarter or year by year financials from you know beginning to end. You know, this is how much we're going to produce. This is the costs associated with production. This is the costs associated with buying diesel, chemicals, trucks, etc. Um, so you get, I think you get more transparency in mining about a theoretical mine development than you do about the business plan of any other company in any other industry. I've never, I mean, I, I don't, I've never seen anything like it in any other industry. And then your job is to assess, okay, how, uh, I, I mean, it goes further than this, but, but a part of a major part of your job, I think is to assess how competent is management of putting together a plan and executing the plan. And can they do this on time or even faster than they're promising? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, what, what has the market, what decision has the market made about that also? Um, you know, is, is this simply trading at a discount to net present value uh, and we're just leveraging time in some way or, or has the market misunderstood something here um, in this plan? Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I mean, mining firms, we're just auditing the ability of management to execute on what they say they're going to do. When you're building the DCF with your probabilities of, you know, where price is going to be, like oil, for instance, you said, I don't know, you know, 60 to 80 fine higher than that. I'm not really, I don't have conviction and lower. I don't really have conviction. How do you think about like assigning the probabilities and, you know, have, have you gotten more scientific with that over time or have you found that the, there's a false precision in trying to get too scientific about it? I mean, we spent a lot of time I don't know how much time I, I've never actually talked with anyone about this. Um, I don't. I don't know how much time fund managers spend thinking about how they do what they do, as opposed to attempting to do what they do, if you will. Um, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we think about investing. Um, so we've been through a couple of different iterations, sort of on that. We've tried Monte Carlo simulations, which they seem fine. Um, I don't reject it by any means or anything like that. Um, but, uh, it just seem a little, it's just a little, a little too much. Like you just don't need to be that involved in it, if you will. Um, how do they and, work when you're, when you're building out a Monte Carlo simulation, yeah. how did like, how, how, uh, cause I've thought about this a decent amount, uh, yeah. like whether or not I like this idea, I think I do, but it's like, how many different input assumptions do you have to get into a Monte Carlo sim, uh, simulation to make it worth the output? And then how flawed can the input decisions be? And then like, am I getting myself to a false precision? Place? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, we always try to keep it pretty simple when we run or when we were, were playing around with that. So like we sort of maintained, a, maintained the production f- forecast and maintained what the management team thought the cost of production would be. Uh, and we just ran the variable around the price mostly. Okay. Um, okay. Just to keep it simple. You know, a lot of times you can get pretty high. I mean, the conviction we can have around uh, cost of production at a mine 
is pretty high, especially in the, the very near term. Like you start talking about 10 years, okay, fine. All, all bets are off for everyone, for everything 10 years from now. But so, so the cost of production variable is pretty easy to sort of be sort of specific and accurate about. So we wouldn't get too far into the weeds. It just seemed like needless steps, if you will. Um, what we ended up liking, and, and there's also some flexibility issues we, or at least for me, that I found there were flexibility issues. Like I wanted to continuously update my ideas, right? And updating my ideas with what we end up doing most of the time, which is like scenarios, um, that each scenario gets weighted after, gets a probability weighting after it it produces a value. Ah, uh, interesting. We just found to be more sort of flexible, especially because, you know, the questions we want to ask are more around things like rather than say flexing oil prices in each scenario, I'm more interested in saying, well, look, if oil is just going to, oil is just going to be 60. I'm just going to say, well, it's going to be 60. What does this business look like if they fail to add production volume or what is it, you know, some of the actual business issues, flexing those is oftentimes more interesting to me. And just in terms of the scenario analysis, it just seemed, it's just been easier to do outside of that construct. Uh, as always, I think, you know, simplicity is important. I think you want to use as few variables as you can get away with. You want to be obviously very humble about it. Uh, strong opinions loosely held. So I try not to be, we, we try not to, we just wind in the strike zone. We, we try not to be too precise about it. So assigning those probabilities, it's highly subjective. And basically my partner and I sort of sit there and like debate them. Um, so, okay. So if one of the things I like about what you're saying is if you're underwriting management's competence and then you're flexing the business variables, that seems to me as though it's easier to track whether or not your underwriting is correct. Whereas like I'm thinking about, well, commodity prices, how are, how are you dealing with the, that in a, in a scenario analysis? But that's not really within anyone's control, right? I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the ways you mitigate the commodity risk is I don't perceive you to be somebody that's chasing like the high cost producer in an industry. No, I mean, you know, there are people that pursue... And, you know, some people have pursued these sort of strategies quite well, like the like the high cost producer in, in commodity industries, you know, when the commodity rips. Yeah, massive that one, tour. That one's going to rip even more. Yeah. Um, but we definitely take a perspective of, you know, A, we like to have a really keen understanding of how much time we think we're going to be invested in in a company and in an idea. We think time is a really important variable in all of this. Uh, and, and some of those, you know, bets, bets on commodity prices via equities, you run into this serious problem where you really can't put like a timeline on it. And so we, we uh, have gone off on a tangent. I'm not sure what your question was, actually. Uh, I, I don't know either, but let's keep going down this road because I um, like what you're saying. Okay. Um, we'll figure and, it out. And, that's how yeah. conversations can go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so we don't, that, you know, function, we, we don't have any way of assessing, is this going to meet our hurdle rate? Is this going to, you know, what, 
Like you could be invested. The idea could be right. Uranium, you could be invested for like 10 years and nothing has happened. Um, and uh, admittedly, it'll rip at the end, perhaps, and that that uh, the crappiest producer will rip the most. Um, but I'd rather try and get singles, doubles, and some home runs than like a quadruple grand slam or something. It's it's uh, playing for asymmetry, if you will, almost cuts both ways. The reason that uh, we got on this tangent was I asked you about high cost producers and I said that you didn't strike me as the type of person that is chasing that. No, we, t- we tend not to chase the high cost producers. We tend to, I think the way I like to phrase it, and this isn't me, this is Howard Mark. Somebody else said this, uh, someone smarter than I, uh, we, we try to buy well as, a pi- as opposed to buy good things. Um, and a high cost producer is not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Uh, and it's really hard to buy well. So we sort of put it out the window. Um, I imagine, you know, look, anything gets cheap enough. There's a price usually. Um, there's definitely a cheap enough price for a high cost producer, but, uh, it doesn't come around very often. Well, something else that you said, um, you were talking about, uh, you were highlighting, the I think there's a perception that majors are less risky than juniors, but you were showing that the juniors actually have probably more upside in many cases with a uh, similar downside. And that was an interesting thing to uh, to see. And, and, and what you said is you said something about like people like a generalist or whatever that's betting on a major, they, they never like size it um I mean, I shouldn't say yeah. never, but they don't size it with the conviction that like matters. And I, I feel a lot of the times, if you're looking at the high cost producer, because zero is on the table, how big can you actually make a bet like that? Right. Uh, cause if the zero comes out and you bet it hard, you got a lot of your career to make up for that. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. Um, I mean, I, I think what you're getting at was, uh, what we often see, in other portfolios is what we refer to as uh, 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 timid bets on a bold forecast. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is a good way to say else. it. Like, like I, I didn't come up with that either. I don't remember who said that, but someone that's else. That's a good that. way to say it. You know, they say copper's going to six or whatever, 10. So I'm going to put 2% in Freeport McMoran, 2% in Southern Copper Company and 2% in Rio Tinto or something. You're like, okay, you've you've basically just said you're going to take six percent of your portfolio and expose it to copper commodity price, and that's your bet. And if copper doesn't hit six, those guys will sell off. Uh, you know, are are they going to sell off as much? To your point earlier, I, I sure showed. I think in this presentation you're talking about, I showed a graph of, uh, and gold makes it very easy to do this because there's an ETF of the seniors and the major producers, and then an ETF of the junior producers. They track each other very well. And they track gold very well in aggregate. Uh, and you know when gold's running, the juniors go up higher. Uh, and when gold is falling, sure, the juniors fall. But I think I think at the end of that chart, the difference between them is less than ten percent, the less than ten percent drawdown. Um, so a, generally speaking, the portfolio manager executes the idea, which again is a top-down commodity price idea via equities, which I think is a very confused way of executing an idea think, you know, part of being a great investor, not that I'm a great investor, but but striving to be a great investor is, you know, sort of figuring out what the best way to execute an idea is. 
And that doesn't seem like the best way to execute a commodity price idea in my mind. Well, what is the best way? Just close that loop. Yeah, well, I would think, you know, look, if you really have conviction about commodity prices, then then you should be in the futures market. Yeah. You get 10 to 1 leverage. Um, I've had people come back to me when I said that and said, oh, well, you get great leverage in uh, leverage to the commodity price with equities. I'm like, yeah, you do. Do you get 10 to 1 leverage? Probably not. Yeah. Um, you know, so if you're really con- high conviction about oil prices or copper prices, go into the futures market and like execute your idea. Uh, don't, you know, get a derivative of the idea, which is what an equity, you know, company is. You've, you've got this whole company layer in between you and the idea. Yeah, you're dealing with all kinds of execution. You're putting like politics in it, not to mention does the equity trade like, yeah, the, yeah it you, is you confusing. You could be completely right about the commodity price, but you picked the guy who decides to build his mine in, yeah. I don't know, whatever, North Korea. And they say, no, you can't build a mine in North Korea. Yeah. Um, or something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, misallocates capital in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. yeah that's exactly right. So, um, yeah. So, uh, but that we see that frequently. I, I think that has something to do with the fact that, you know, everybody's got their circles of competence, and our industry has a tendency to go, as you sort of suggested at the beginning of the, the podcast, go in and out of favor. And so everyone has fear of missing out. And, and so you, how do you alleviate your fear of missing out? You make a small play uh, that is, you think is unlikely to hurt you. Um, but it's just, it's all confused in my, my opinion. Yeah. Just speaking for myself, my answer with commodities has either been to buy a small portion and then when they are completely out of favor, buy more or just completely like avoid it or give it to someone like yourself because that's the only way that I think uh, makes sense for me. And, you know, to this to this day, not having oil exposure, uh, you know, hurt a lot, but I still think it was the right decision for me. I don't, I don't know what the heck I'm doing in that. And I was looking, man, I was looking at Exxon and their free cash flow conversion from like net income to free cash flow on the the past decade was just like garbage because I was trying to to rethink like did I tell myself a story about oil men drilling that was not true you know and it turns out the stocks ripped when all the big write downs occurred maybe that was the sign but I don't know man I'm I'm not smart enough to figure that stuff out I'd leave it to the specialists yeah I mean I, I think again one of the the important things about one of the important things to remember about investing in, in commodity producers, we go back to that. Are you buying well or are you buying a good thing? Um, and I look at a company like ExxonMobil and ExxonMobil, I mean, strictly speaking, ExxonMobil probably is as close to a, you could hold through cycle company as, as you're going to get in commodity producers, right? If you've held it for the last 30 years, you probably have done very well. But they're few and far between. And commodity producers have a window in which they can make money. And you're either in that window or you're not. Now, if you're trying to buy good things, you need to be in that window. But if you're trying to buy things well, as opposed to buy good things, you don't necessarily need to be in the window. You need to you know, sort of buy it when it's mispriced the most relative to expectations. And I mean, that's where we end up finding ourselves playing most of the time. It's not a question of 
you know, does this company have the ability to reinvest capital at high rates of return going forward on to into the future, you know, um, you know, to, in media, to put it into media companies, it's not, you know, it, it's not Disney. Can they continue to produce good TV shows around Star Wars and stuff like that? I, I don't need to answer those questions. Um, I need to figure out, you know, is this mispriced in the present based on expectations and then once that mispricing closes, I've got to get out because the ability to recycle and continue to hold is very limited. Um, so obviously buy and hold uh, and the perspective or mindset it takes to think about buy and hold investments doesn't really apply so much, in my opinion, to a lot of what we do. There are exceptions and occasionally we find a company that we think or hope uh, might be something you can hold through cycle. Uh, but that only occurs in very, you know, sort of specific, very specific, very rare situations. I think the only thing in our portfolio right now where, you know, we might consider that is something like Lithium Americas, where, you know, this is a company that we invested in pre-production a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know, we bought it at a buck 50. Um, it's now $17 stock having been as high as a $40 stock. Oh my Lord. Um, is that good? That seems, that seems good. That's, that was a good, that was a good, <laughs> um, that, that was a good investment on our part. Um, we, we didn't sell at 40, we trimmed, we continue to own it. That, that's the other thing. We, we've got to do a lot more trimming, buying and trimming things every once in a while than, than some people would like. Um, but they've got this asset base that is sufficient with a management team that is sufficiently capable and knowledgeable about the lithium industry, that they could continue to reinvest capital for quite a while. That doesn't happen very often though. That's very rare. Uh, and this company has gone from a junior to, it'll be a major in the lithium industry in 10 years. That doesn't happen very often. That's, that's a very unique situation that's probably more a function of the lithium industry than it is maybe lithium America's itself. Is it a roll up or is it more organic? No, it's organic. They, uh, they found, I don't remember which they found first. They have two assets. One is uh, an asset called Thacker pass, which is a lithium deposit in Nevada. Um, and the other is a, a lithium asset in South America in Argentina called Cuchari. Um, the Cuchari asset they own, uh, with Gangfang, which is a Chinese lithium uh, refiner and, and battery sort of related company. Um, but the, the way these deposits, these lithium deposits work is there these, in South America at least, there's these big underground aquifers filled with brine that's, that's got a lot of lithium in it. Um, and they've managed to slowly, they've been very thoughtful about how they use their capital. So for example, you know, when the stock hit 40, which was ridiculous, like it made no sense. Like even I, I'm just sort of like, guys, it's not worth that. <laughs> I'm thrilled, but it's not worth that. Let's be serious here. They also were like, well, let's be serious here. This is not worth this. We're going to issue stock. Huh. Um, so they issued stock and and what they've done with that stock is they've, they've then, uh, the cash that they got from it, uh, they then proceeded to buy up sort of guys around them, but they didn't do it until 12 months later after everything had sold off. Oh, smart. Um, and so they've been very good at their capital deployment. And that, 
you know, outside of capital deployment into projects, that sort of broader company capital deployment is where resource management teams tend to come up short, right? They tend to be very good at deploying capital into a project. We need to build a mine, so we need to, you know, build a processing plant, so we need a mineral processing engineer, and, you know, he needs to know which chemicals to buy and all the, like that, that's a very uh, sort of blueprint there's a blueprint and and this is the capital we need to allocate. They're very good at that. This sort of broader capital allocation of a business as an ongoing entity, as opposed to a project with a beginning and end, they tend to suffer. Uh, management teams in resources tend to struggle with that, um, which is another reason why you buy, you sell and you move on. Yeah. The brine, are they uh, are they like pumping that up and using uh, like solar in order to to have it evaporate and then they scrape it off so you get this low cost uh, production? Yes, that's uh, that's basically the South America route to lithium. It's huh. it's. Um, I would think you could do it in Nevada too. Yeah, you can. Uh, in theory, you could. Argentina and Chile and these places benefit from a really high altitude where the mines are. And so it's really dry. The sun is very strong. Um, so there are some benefits that I'm not sure accrue to sort of places in Nevada. The other thing is that, of course, if you don't have a brine deposit, yeah, you, you can't approach it that way. Um, the Thacker Pass asset is what's called a clay deposit. Okay. Um, okay. And so it, it, w- it just doesn't even apply I think in maybe Arkansas or Alabama, there's some brine deposits uh, for lithium that some companies are looking at. It'd be tough to do it with all the rain down here, man, or like in the southeast, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe you could. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but but I think and, and to your point, I, they're trying to uh, monetize those assets differently. They are trying to do sort of what they call direct extraction, where they've they've built a machine, if you will. And it's got a permeable layer. Oh, yeah. Um, and you go in and scoop it up almost. Push, they try and push the brine through and everything but the lithium in theory gets caught by the, or uh, the lithium is all that gets caught by the membrane. And yeah. Then, so. Um, That's cool, man. I like this stuff. I think it's fascinating. No, I think it's cool too. It's very, um, I don't know, it's very hands-on. Um, there's a lot of science. Uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about chem I mean I spent a lot of time thinking about chemistry and and physics and um, machines uh, I I'm in these industries because I like big toys yeah that, that's what I've been told um, you know I, I like oil rigs and giant trucks and uh, you know mines drill giant holes in the ground and yeah so that's cool stuff. I think there's something uh, to me, I don't know if it goes back to just like the little boy in me or whatever, but like you see the assets and it's like, that's just like cool, man. You know, like you're moving dirt and, uh, you know, I saw, I know when my, you know, when we lived in Chicago, we had like five houses on the block that we were at got torn down and you just watch the kids watch it and they're just like obsessed with it. And I feel like, uh, I don't know that there might be something innate there. No, I think there is. It's uh it's a little dangerous though. Like my first my first foray, if you will, into um really into material companies uh on the investing side was into Freeport McMoran at one point. And 
I just fell in love with their assets and nothing else. I didn't pay attention to anything else. And of course it was a big mistake, but the assets were just so cool that I was like, these are so cool. How can it not be worth more? And it's yeah. sort of like, well, that's not exactly the way it works, but that that's what I'm. So I found this company intrepid potash that I talk about occasionally. Cause I, we, I worked on the, in the group that banked them. Okay. And I also fell in love with the assets. And the reason that I asked the Brian question is they make their potash in a similar way. Now, I, they lack the scale to be like a low cost producer, but in a local geography, they can get it delivered okay. uh, at a low cost to a certain group of people. Right. So I fell in love with that. Thankfully, I was at the bank and I was restricted because I, I like first liked it when it was like, I think it was up to a $2 billion company, you know, and then. Uh, the Belarus and Russian cartel broke up and the entire market got completely fucked up. And like, I just watched that company trade from, I, I think it was 2 billion. It might've been 1 billion, but they were on, they were on the verge of bankruptcy before I actually uh, ended up buying any. And then that the the one trade that I made in it was an event driven, you know, thing. And I, and I held it briefly at the end of 2020. And I was like, what am I doing here? And then of course, you know, I sold and everything ripped, but I did not foresee what would have happened. Even when Russia invaded, I didn't like my brain didn't connect it. So I didn't deserve the profit, but it, it did kind of hurt to watch it 10 X and have no yeah, exposure to yeah. it. Oh, well onward. We see a lot of, um, I will say that if you, especially if you focus on mining and we do, you know, about 40% of our portfolio is in mining and has been on a continuous basis since 2016. So we do a lot of mining. I like mining. Um, you got to, you see a lot of that, if you will, where something, you looked at something and you were like, mm, I just don't think management's really going to get this bill, but they get a bill. And, you know, it, it goes from 25 cents to $5 a share or something. And like, one of the things that's nice about mining is it's all done in public markets. It's all done in Canada and Australia, public markets. So there's continuous deal flow, if you will. You know, new companies getting ready to turn on a mine just on a continuous basis. So there's always something to look at, but there's always an opportunity to miss something also. You've got <laughs> yeah. to deal with, with that. You've got to be okay with like, oh, I missed that one. You know, well, you know, that, that one, and this is my perception, I don't think it's factual, but I, I, the, the other problem is it's like really owned by this one guy. And I just wasn't convinced that he cared about giving dividends to share like minority shareholders and, you know, cause that stuff matters, right? I mean, something you talk about a lot in the presentation that you made is like, we underwrite management teams, right? And not, not just management, but caring about the minority shareholder is yeah. uh, really important. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, especially I think in... And again, there's, uh, I, I often come back to sort of these differences and how, how different invest, different companies require a different approach to thinking through, you know, how you're going to extract value, if you will. But especially the companies we invest in, you know, they've got to generate free cash flow. Um, like that is, that, that's, and, and they've got to return it. Like that, there isn't a reinvestment cycle, if you will, that's the same as say, uh, Netflix or, or Amazon or something like that. There aren't, you know, all sorts of different directions you can go in. Um, so capital return is critical in our industries. Um, and being very clear about whether your investment is a capital return investment or a capital appreciation investment is, you know, is, is essential. Um, and uh, very rarely is it both. 
at least in my opinion, but, but sometimes it is. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you, you had touched on, I, I almost, I'm going to say it wrong, but this is the way my head is thinking about it now. It's almost like industries that are in runoff have higher margins than industries that are doing like further processing. But I, I don't know that I'm thinking about that correctly. Yeah. So you have, uh, what I would call, say, uh, process commodities and uh, depleting commodities. So what is a process econ- or commodity? So a process commodity is something like steel, right? Where the product itself is a commodity because it's undifferentiated, it trades on a market, whatever. Uh, but you don't actually dig steel out of the ground, right? You dig iron ore out of the ground, you dig a couple other things, you put it together in a blast furnace or an electric art furnace, and you get steel. So there's a factory, basically, a, a manufacturing facility of some kind. Okay. Depleting resource commodities are things like copper, where you know you, you can't literally use the copper you uh, pull out of the ground. It requires processing too. But in essence, uh, the processing all occurs at the mine. And what you've got is an asset that is literally depleting over time and sort of, as we've talked about, has a beginning and an end. It's got a life. Okay, a steel plant, A steel plant has a life but a steel business doesn't necessarily have a life, right? They could just build a new plant. If, if we even keep it to copper, would you say that the, the, the person that's mining the copper, that's the depletion business and the person making like copper wire would be the process business or something? Yeah, like that, that would be more of a process business. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, if you just look at those two, then the copper wire company and the, the copper mining company, um, when the copper miner or the copper uh, wire company says, okay, my 30-year-old plant is at the end of its life. Uh, it no longer pays for me to continue to invest in it. I am now in the uh, you know, bottom third of the cost curve. I need to build a new facility. Now, he doesn't raise his hand and go, can someone please build me a low-efficiency copper wire plant <laughs> such that I stay in the third quartile? No, so how do I build the most efficient, most cost-effective copper wire plant? And so what ends up happening is you end up shoving, you know, he ends up going from third quartile to first quartile and your cost curve flattens. Yep. And aggregate profit is almost always, the incentive is to always chip away at aggregate profit. Yeah. And so the depreciating asset person, on the other hand, is subject to the whims of the assets he can find. Now, every once in a while, someone finds a big old copper asset that slots them in at the beginning or the front of the cost curve. But generally speaking, you know, I think most miners tend to find assets that uh, put them, you know, more in the the middle 50% of the cost curve or something. And so there, you know, the cost curve, rather than flattening, it gets steeper. Um, And so what ends up happening there is that the margins in the steepening business tend to be higher than the margins in the the flattening cost curve business. This makes sense. Thank you. I, I was, I listened to it like twice and I, I, I like, I was like, I know, I think I know what he's saying and I didn't know it all. Yeah. You just have to visualize these cost curves and sort of like moving people around on the cost curve. Um, it's one of the reasons why steel, you know, steel and com- commodity, uh, or, or bulk commodity chemicals, for example, is why some of those businesses can be really tricky um, 
really tricky businesses. Um, well, yeah. And if you're processing it, like uh, the reason I thought of copper wire, we banked one of them too. And it's like, you, you don't set your price at your se- what you're selling and you don't set your input price. And it's just like, that is a tough business. Yeah. Which, uh, uh, oh, I guess you probably can't. That was, yeah, it was, it was on, small. On I can't. Okay. No, no, no. It was, I did. Uh, I can't, but, okay. uh, it, it was interesting to watch and it was yeah, credit yeah. that spent, I spent a lot of my time on it because it was, it was an S4 slash P1, which in banking terms means you're writing credit memos very often on it. Okay. Uh, gotcha. So gotcha. it could have gone, could have gone to work out, but, uh, we, we made it through. So no worries. Um, can we talk about the inflation reduction act and how it impacts you and, uh, and the yeah. businesses that you look at? Yeah. Um, like, what I mean, I don't know where to start, but what's it, what is your general feeling of? I mean, I read your paper on decarbonization and sort of the goal of of twenty fifty and net zero and whatnot, and and I think we both agree that that's going to be a tough goal to achieve, uh, if not impossible. But I think we'd also both agree that there's a lot of political will to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I'd be interested to hear you talk about. Uh, you referred to it as like the biggest revolution in the in the economy ever. And I, I tend to agree. So like that's got to have opportunity associated with it now. Yeah. So I think there, there are two different things you sort of said there. So one is the opportunity in a transition. So look, if we are intending to transition to a low carbon economy, which I don't see any reason why that's not sort of the case going forward, Um, and I I also, it's not clear to me why we wouldn't want, like as a goal, it's not a bad, like there's nothing inherently bad or wrong about that goal. Like you can't have, I don't know, people on Twitter or stuff like that. They get like morally outraged by these things. There's, There's no morally outraged anything about this. Like if, if we want to transition to a low carbon economy that again, there's nothing morally good or bad about that. It just, it is what it is. Um, and it's not a it's not a terrible goal. The idea of pumping less carbon out into the environment, like you can't critique that, right? It's just it is what it is. And yeah, sure, we'd rather pollute less. Um, but if that is the goal, it touches everything. It just it just touches every business on the face of the earth, and. It requires one thing from a lot of businesses, and that is for them to change how they do whatever it is they do. Okay. And if you have to change, and so if that's a cement or steel producer, they have to change how they make this product that they've, for all intents and purposes, I mean, cement manufacturing hasn't changed in like a hundred years. Steel manufacturing or production changed in the late 80s, early 90s when Nucor came out with mini mills, but like, that's the only, the only like meaningful, like, you know, widespread business model change in the steel industry in a long time. What um, about uh, electronic arc? Would you not consider that? Uh, oh, that, that, sorry. That's, that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, Nucor was the first company to really roll out an EAF continuous casting electric arc furnace. So that, that was the only, the, yeah, that, that's the change. Um, and so these guys, they need to come up with a different way of doing it. They need a new business model. And a lot of businesses need new business models. Uh, and there's huge opportunity in that because 
you know, and, and huge opportunity for active management, right? Because you look at something like, I mean, the example we always give to keep it simple and to keep it within companies that everyone knows is, is large integrated oil companies. ExxonMobil has said, we are an oil company. We're going to pump oil. We also know a lot about carbon capture. So we're going to do some carbon capture. BP has said, we're giant. I don't like this strategy. We're giant and have a big balance sheet. So we're just going to throw money at the wall and do a little bit of everything. Equinor has said, we are an offshore oil company. So we are going to do offshore oil as clean as possible because we're Norway. And we're also going to do offshore wind because that meshes well with our offshore expertise. Uh, and then you've got a couple other, you know, so basically you've had all these companies that 10 years ago, I mean, their business models were all the same. It was, let me try and pump oil as cheaply as possible. Now they're all going off in different directions, doing different things. Um, some of them are going to succeed. Some of them are going to fail. Some of the investments make no sense. Some of them will make sense. Uh, so, you know, this effort to decarbonize the economy is the largest industrial activity ever undertaken writ large because everything's got to change. So that's where where we think the we think a big opportunity lies because of all of that change. Well, you know what I find kind of interesting about it too is is if our goal is to move, and I, I think. I mean, who knows if this trade has more legs, but it definitely played out. If the goal is to move away from uh, fossil fuels or whatever, the incentive to build something like, say, a new refinery is zero. I, I mean, for the most part. And uh, I, I got a buddy that trades gas and I talk to him all the time. He's like, dude, I've never seen cracks like this in my entire life. And they're not moving down. And if you think oil is going lower it's only going to help the refinery because they don't have enough capacity as is. So it's not like you're going to see the cracks, like they're actually going to widen. I think my tendency has been when I see change to be like, oh, wow, like I should look at change for where the opportunity is. But sometimes it feels like change may actually make the opportunity uh, in the existing assets because nobody is thinking about that asset base is what actually may gain economic value. Yeah. It's kind of odd. You, you actually, it, it, this started with the IRA and, and I'll circle back around to that. Um, I think what you point out is extremely important uh, because what I see when I look at this transition is this giant sequencing error that is occurring, basically. And so the IRA bill, for example, comes out and, and we see this in Germany. Germany's the poster child of how not to sort of run your energy system. They have downstream demands on energy, both both energy and natural gas as, as a chemical, if you will, as opposed to as a source of energy, right? It's a precursor for a lot of their industries. Hydrocarbons are used in the manufacture of all sorts of stuff. So what they've done is they've basically said, uh, we're going to uh, change the energy system, but not the end demand. And so you've, you've sequenced it wrong, where you want to de decarbonize the end demand first and get that up and running and then phase out your carbon after you've already established that you can phase it out, not, not before. 
And so the IRA bill, I think, doubles down on some of these issues of sequencing where uh, they're priming the pump, if you will, for renewables, but they haven't, we haven't made enough progress downstream of energy demand to decarbonize those components, if you will. So like, you can't get rid of hydrocarbons, you can't stop producing hydrocarbons, et cetera, if you know, a certain volume of cars are still internal combustion engines. If, you know, you, we're still heavily reliant, all our chemicals, every chemical on the face of the earth is basically a hydrocarbon of some kind, right? So, uh, and chemicals are everywhere. So we can't decarbonize before we address the chemical issue. Um, so these issues, you know, steel, we use steel and cement everywhere. Until you know how to produce steel and cement, without hydrocarbons, you better not disincentivize investment in hydrocarbons because then you run into this issue that you just highlighted, which is some of the existing assets become increasingly important, increasingly valuable, um, and in some regards create geostrategic issues uh, for countries, um, as we're seeing in Europe, where, you know, like Norwegian natural gas is like geostrategically important. Like, if Russia wanted to plant a bunch of destroyers or something off the, the coast of Norway, like Europe probably needs to send destroyers of their own, right? Like that's an essential asset now um, that the continent can't do without. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, um, I, I've been looking and trying to find sort of like sleepy businesses that I think can benefit from, from uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. But um I don't know. I, I was smart. I mean, I had a little bit of Valero last year, which saved me a little bit. Um, but, you know, not enough. But it, it's just been really interesting uh, to see. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I asked a question on Twitter. I said, if uh, if self-driving, why does self-driving have economic value to uh, invest in? And I didn't ask it the right way, which got some of the answers diverted. But but the the thing that was interesting to me is a lot of the responses were like, well, this is what it's going to do for the world, right? And I read a lot of them like, you know, oh, well, we won't have as many deaths and, and insurance won't will be priced, uh, you know, really accurately and this and that. And it's like, okay, but that doesn't really tell me why self-driving captures any economic value. Some said like local monopolies and scale and like, okay, I can get behind that. But then you got to have a fleet that you got to invest in, yada, yada. Even like the, the IRA... And, and where I think people want to take the argument feels utopian in the way that some of the responses to me on my question felt utopian, but, but the economic rationale is not there. And, and some of the, the discussion around these things rhymes to me. I think I get what you're saying, and I think I, I tend to agree. The place where and we'll see if I can see if I can describe this because I've never managed to really successfully describe this issue. Um, the IRA is great for building solar utility scale solar out, okay? But it basically, you know, is just financing the building out of utility scale solar. Um, the challenge with solar, or one of the challenges that we see, is that every time we look at the industry. And we look at, say, the profit pool of the entire industry, what we find is that there really isn't one, which is to say everyone 
at every stage in the process, from your production of polysilicon into uh, silicon wafers, into solar panels, solar panels into utility scale facilities, like everyone is losing money. So there's no kink in that value chain that like. Well, so so there there is, there is one kink. Okay. One kink, at least when we did this now, we did this analysis in two, 2020 when everyone was at home and we had lots of time to do random like research projects. The one kink was polysilicon producers in China who could produce really cheap polysilicon from coal because it, a, it was coal, and B, uh, the power was subsidized by the Chinese government. Um, so, so that was where the profit pool was in the solar industry. And so you're, you're sort of sitting there, you're like, the IRA is facilitating the build-out of this further, and the cost of producing electricity from solar you know, is, you know, I mean, incrementally, it's nothing, right, um, once it's there. And uh, everyone's trying to drive down the cost of electricity. And meanwhile, in the end, in some regards, the cost of electricity in some regards determines what the theoretical profit pool all the way upstream could theoretically be. There isn't one. So this whole thing is unsustainable, right? The whole thing is just going to collapse on itself in theory um, until someone makes some money. If you can't generate any cash, you're not sustainable. Um, even if you're environmentally sustainable, which, you know, that's also an open question if your panels all come from China with coal. Um, and then, of course, there's an amusing issue of, of where, where those panels get put. So Germany, again, uh, your energy return on energy invested in some of these solar panels that they've built in Germany uh, is less than one. Huh. Which, which is to say, which is to say, you've basically bought a really bad battery from China. Um, You're not going to get as much energy out of it as you put into it. Now, that doesn't happen very often, mind you. Um, But the energy return on energy invested for a lot of solar panels is, you know, it's kind of mediocre. Got to put it in the right place. Uh, It's not a universal solution. Um, Hmm. Probably probably doesn't work in Maine. Probably doesn't work very well in Chicago. Uh, Works really well in Nevada. Yeah, it's that's interesting. I then I I'm, my head's thinking about like the net present value of energy usage today, and like would it be better to just defer some of it? I don't know. It's it's wild. I mean, I you know I I know that I don't know enough to talk about environmental issues uh, really competently, but I also know enough to know that uh, the the IRA is going to it it has a lot of economic incentives that are going to change things, and I am not confident that we are going to go to a better place long term than where we currently are. And I and I don't want to sound like a, an old man or a curmudgeon or a Luddite or whatever, but Well no, but I think I think you're right. Uh, you know, here's another example and and you know Chip, my partner, okay, Chip lives in Colorado. Okay, the IRA has got various different incentives, as you said, for all kinds of different things. I believe there's an incentive for for heat pumps in there somewhere. Okay. So Chip works in he's taken the garage at his house and sort of converted it into an office it was a separate garage from his house unheated okay he lives in colorado so he needs to to heat it so he bought a heat pump well two weeks ago when it was negative 40 or something in colorado 
the heat pump, there, there wasn't enough of a temperature gradient outside for the heat pump to work. And so the heat pump basically just turned into, it was still heating. Sure, it wasn't blowing out negative 40 degree air, but it was blowing out zero degree. Did it really air. get that cold in Colorado? Yeah, with the wind chill and stuff like oh, that. Oh, jeez, so, that's Chicago weather. No, thank you. Yeah. So, so here he is. And amusingly enough, we bought these new computers for the company at the beginning of the year that have liquid cooling. Oh, no. He couldn't fucking couldn't keep it warm enough in in his. I mean, zero is too cold in my opinion to sit and read ten Ks in. But but he couldn't even keep it warm enough such that that the computer's liquid cooling would stay liquid. Wow! Um, and and that was a function of the heat pump. You know, it's not primed up for. It's not there yet for that kind of temp- temperature fluctuation. It works really well, say where I am in North Carolina, where you get like five year, five days a year where it goes to zero and it's always at night, right? So, so heat pump works really well. These economic incentives in the IRA, the challenge with economic incentives in my mind is they're a hammer. And this is really nuanced, complicated stuff. Um, even the producers of heat pumps, if you go to like the TRAN website, TRAN's a big producer of heat pumps and HVAC equipment, they have a map and they say like, this is where it's good to use heat pumps. And this is where we suggest at the very minimum, if you're going to use a heat pump, you have backup. That's either natural gas or uh, electric resistance, which is just, you know, electric heating. Large parts of the United States, um, basically everything, uh, everything north, north of, I don't know, Virginia or something like that, just cut the line across, you know, they suggest you have backup. Um, But of course, if you're backup, is electric resistance that means that the power and the grid uh need to work for you um but if we haven't sequenced the phase out of you know coal and natural gas well or we haven't say in the case of new england and new york we can't build a pipeline to get more natural gas that electricity demand that increase incremental electricity demand uh is a theoretical problem um in New England, during Christmas week, 40% of their electricity came from burning oil. I mean, that's basically, that's basically like saying we're going to heat the house by burning, you know, single malt scotch or something. You know, it's like a terrible misuse of resources. Uh, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I've been in rooms where Bloomstrand has, has argued uh, this is why you know, you should look at, at the current existing infrastructure. And I, I don't think he'd mind me uh, sharing that. I think you can just look at his portfolio to see his views and he discloses that. So no, I, I would agree. Chris, uh, Chris Bloomstrand is, uh, he's spot on on the, a lot of this stuff. Um, there's something called the, I think it's called the Chester fence paradox. I don't remember the author's name, but, but in essence, he's like, before you tear down a fence, ask the question why that fence exists in the first place. Yeah. Um, we are very much in a situation where we've decided to tear down a bunch of fences without asking why those fences are important in the first place. Um, create a weird sequence of, of cascading issues if you, if you don't, don't understand that.
or don't examine why the fence is there. Yeah, man. And then you overlay politics with it. And it's like, uh, it's an easy thing to sell. Like, well, shouldn't we be, you know, shouldn't we be decarbonized? Like, well, yeah, sure we should. Right. But like, can we is maybe a different question. And how is this actually going to happen is another issue. So I don't know. There's a lot of things like, look, renewable jet fuel. Like I'm, I'm totally down for trying, you know, but how long is it going to take? I don't know. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm all for innovation and like, we should try everything. Like there's no reason not to. The issues I run into when I, is when I see people who have gone so far and I saw this recently, actually, I don't, I don't remember where it was, but, but someone talking about, we had, you know, a big piece of news a couple of weeks ago around fission, right? And Los Alamos labs was able to extract more energy from a, a fission fission, no, fusion, sorry, fusion reaction um, than ever before. So, okay, so we're maybe on our way to fusion reactors. Uh, and this uh, very smart, you know, sort of climate scientist, very knowledgeable guy about that particular issue said, well, geez, this is a giant waste of time and money. We shouldn't be doing this because we need to be transitioning by 2050. Uh, and uh, we've already figured out a way to do that. So we shouldn't waste any money on on this additional R and D. Uh, that should all be devoted towards, you know, f- more solar panels, more wind turbines, and I don't know that it's just a very weird. I, I don't even understand. Like I can't even wrap my hands around that like line of thought. Let's not continue to push the envelope and innovate. It it just it's just a odd line of thought in my mind. Yeah, you're almost saying we've. Uh... We've hit a good enough spot and uh, no need to continue this. We should go where where I think we should go, right? Yeah. Well, like, well, what's, I don't, yeah. Uh, growth seems critical. Innovation seems important for growth. Um, and improving everyone's lives probably occurs mostly through innovation. So I, I don't, I don't even understand the, the thought process. Well, I'm thinking about my current age and I'm thinking of 2050 and I'm going to chew up a lot of my good years by then. So uh, I'd, I'd prefer to keep innovating so I can have, uh, you know, it's maybe a little selfish of me, but uh, some would say there's a selfish gene in us. So, Well, yeah. And um, I mean, there's a big discussion about, uh, and I think The Economist, that, that uh, in some regards, awful Christmas issue they produce every year that's a double issue. It's like 300 pages of economist you have to get through it in two weeks um they did a big uh big article this christmas about you know how how much value should we put on on lives that don't yet exist you know like the the people born in 2080 what do we owe them um yeah it's a really tough question to answer it's really hard i have determined that four generations from now is a stranger to me I might, I might be off. I'm, it's maybe five generations. I toy with this because like my kids' grandkids are probably not strangers to me, but my kids' great grandkids, strangers. Yeah. Okay. So that's where you draw the line. Yeah, I think so. I, I think mean, so. It, but that's, that was sort of like the, almost the point of the economist article. It was sort of like all these lines are arbitrary and there is no way to make them anything other than arbitrary. Um, I think, you know, that, Seems like a perfectly reasonable line to me. Um, I'd probably even draw it in a little bit further. Um, I'm more worried about the pythons in the Everglades than I am the 2080 humans. And I think most people are probably more worried about, you know, the present problems that they face than what happens in 2080. Yeah. Uh, 
So, and, and certainly, you know, certainly if you're in Africa and, you know, look, there are 2 billion people in the world who still burn wood or uh, waste, et cetera, for all their energy. Um, they're definitely not thinking about climate change. They're thinking about, you know, where their next meal is going to come from and where they're going to get the wood to keep their house warm um, or their, wh wherever they live. Um, so it's, it's difficult. Uh, it's a very politically taught problem. Yeah, it is politically taught. That's a very good way to say it. I'm sure we pissed at a lot of people off while we talked about it. So uh, yeah. apologies. Um, <laughs> uh, one thing, and then I want to get you out of here because I know you're a busy dude. Uh, copper, what makes it so complicated? So copper, I'm always interested in these situations, especially when it comes to mining, because if you remember earlier, I said there's always deal flow. Copper, critical resource for whether we transition or not, let's say copper is important. It's in everything, right? The challenge with copper at the moment is that the macro setup, and this is particularly a challenge for us where, you know, again, we're looking for companies, not the commodity. The macro setup for the commodity from a supply demand perspective is unbelievable. It's just spectacular. Like it is, it is to sort of contextualize it, the, the, CEO of Freeport MacMoran said recently, sometime last year, uh, if copper was trading at eight dollars a pound, meanwhile we're looking at uh, you know three seventy four right now, eight dollars a pound. He said, uh, if copper was trading at eight dollars a pound, I couldn't bring a copper mine online in the next decade. Huh? There is just there are no significant copper mines coming online anytime soon and finding significant assets is getting increasingly difficult and you've got this the situation with mining where you sort of have two two spectrums you have this uh, geological complication on one one line and infrastructure necessary to monetize the asset on the other and oftentimes what you have is uh, an asset that is very ge geologically complicated but doesn't require a lot of infrastructure. So that, that business model works. That's like diamonds, right? Diamond mines, very geologically complicated, but in the end, you put the product in a Pelican case, the Pelican case goes on a helicopter, and you're done. Then you have iron ore, let's say on the other side, which very simple geology. You're like you go to Australia, these mines are, are not really mines, they're more like giant sand pits. You're just like scooping up red dirt. But in order to make that business work, they had to build a freaking railroad and a port, right? So the infrastructure is huge, okay? Because the volume is huge. Copper has historically sort of sat somewhere in the middle, right? Where the geology was a little more complicated and the infrastructure was modestly high because we still need a lot of copper. Now what we see is that copper demand um, continues to, to grow and, and is expected to grow quite significantly, uh, but the geology has gotten really complicated. And because of the demand, the infrastructure necessary has gotten really large. And so you've got sort of, you've gone to the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and so actually getting a copper deposit into production is really hard and there just aren't that many of them. Um, and so you've got this great macro setup, but when it comes down to the equities, you sit and you look, and you can either, basically, you can either make a bet on copper prices right now via 
exposure to Freeport MacMoran, but as we've already established, they're not putting a mine into production anytime anytime soon. So 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 there's there's no company specific variables, and there aren't you know there aren't juniors that are going to be putting a mine into production. Um, so you've just got this fascinating situation that's like a spring just getting more and more and more compressed, and eventually something has to break. I certainly hope I find the company that that breaks it, but at this point, really struggling to find interesting opportunities in copper, despite the fact that the macro setup for the commodity price is about as interesting as it gets for a commodity. Um, I mean, it's much more much more clear cut uh, because the supply side is so easy to sort of figure out um, than say something like oil. I mean, what, what would a bear say? They're going to say like most of the demand comes from China and China demand may not come back or something, or is this like implied in the uh, futures price? I'd have to go and look at the futures curve. Um, outside of three months, I don't really pay much attention to futures curves. Um, they're good for sort of a real-time sentiment indicator, but not not much else. Uh, I think the bear case absolutely probably, or I know, absolutely starts with China. Um but there in China, it's complicated too, and it's more nuanced. People go, okay, well, it must be the real estate sector. Um, that, that's the copper demand. Uh, but uh, electricity reworking their grid and building out EVs and building out uh, renewable power, all of these things that they're doing at huge scales have an equal uh, and growing uh, copper demand. And so what we've found is that like last year, for example, any of the weakness in copper demand in China associated with a weak real estate sector was more than compensated for by strength in the other sectors combined. So no single sector outweighed it, but the rest, the, the combination more, more than, than did. And this Saturday, uh, this past Saturday, the Chinese, I don't remember which committee, um, they got a lot of committees, released a report about what their plan for building uh, renewables out this year is. They intend to build something like, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but the magnitude completely right, 110 gigawatts of solar, uh, and I'll contextualize that in a second, uh, and 75 gigawatts of wind. Okay, so their intention is to build in a single year basically increase their renewable footprint in a single year by 25%. That single year production is more wind and solar than say India, South Korea, and Japan, I think combined have built in entirety. Wow. Um, it, these are huge numbers. Uh, and the demand for copper, you know, this is government incentivized. The demand for copper is, you know, there's going to be demand there. The question continues, and and you also have these inventory issues. We we are running into these inventory issues across all the metal space, uh, which is there just aren't inventories anymore. Um, inventories at the LME and at the Shanghai uh, Metals Exchange, you know, the inventories are are maybe not at you know absolute lows across the board, but for a lot of commodities, they're either at absolute lows. Uh, historically or very close to them. Um, and so you just need a little bit of, we like easy hurdles, right? And you just need to, you know, to get the copper price to move, you, you just need a little bit of good luck. You just need things to work a little bit, um, let alone 
you know, you actually get like real meaningful demand. But again, it's, it's interesting, I think, because the macro setup is so good, which you think would incentivize people to come to market and find and build assets. Yeah, it's just not really happening. Probably because the that was a part of a contributing factor to why it's so good, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that's, you know, going back to the IRA, um, one of the great disappointments for me about the IRA was Senator Manchin out of West Virginia, right? He he said, I'll vote for this. And I, you know, I, I'm not in the room, so I don't know the exact details, right? But he said, I'll vote for this, but we need to work on permitting reform for projects, you know, like mines and like pipelines. And he was specifically concerned with this pipeline called Mountain Valley Pass uh, that runs through West Virginia that is 95% complete at a cost of $5 billion and has been held up because in court because of, I don't know, something to do with, there's not an animal, but there's, there's some piece of land that it crosses a river or something and Everybody freaked out. So this pipeline, he wants permitting reform to get that pipeline finished. But there's a tier one asset, a copper asset in uh, Alaska right now that, you know, it, it it's not a should be built. It's a like must be built. Like there aren't that many tier one assets. And it's being held up for several years now as a result of the fact they can't get a, a road permitted. Uh, it's a road through the middle of Alaska. I, I recognize that there's beautiful country up there, but it's a road in the middle of Alaska. Like there is nothing around it. It's wildlife, but yes, I can yeah, understand what you're I, saying. Yeah. Um, these things should be done properly and, you know, cognizant of everyone. And I, you know, love the mountains and want to be out there in the woods uh, myself. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have to balance to balance everything right yeah yeah it's gonna be an expensive road <laughs> it'll be an expensive road yes <laughs> once it finally gets done that's not the easiest place to build i wouldn't think yeah no, um no. all right well cool man well i appreciate you coming on is there anything else you want to chat about no i'm good this is fun all um, right you got an open invite i uh you know i wish you, you good luck with the uh you know the business this year and uh i really i really enjoyed your presentation um to those that don't aren't members of Manual of Ideas, you know, give John a shout out, see or a shout, and see if uh, he'll let you in. It's a little tough to get in these days, but it's a hell of a community. I think the wait the wait uh, list I think is as many people as our members, if I if I remember correctly from the last time I talked with them about it. So yes, well, it's a smart way to run a business. Yeah, yeah. So. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much, and uh, like I said, you're always uh, you're always welcome. Okay, thank you.